Hello everybody, welcome back to the History of Video Games. My name is Wes, and I am here with the wonderful Benjamin. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, how are you Wes? I am doing really good. Yeah. Nice. Why don't you uh, get us started off today with what you've been playing recently? Oh, I will, and I cannot wait to tell you about NBA Street 2, Wes. This has been one that I've been long itching to get my fingers back in, and um... Yeah, I wanted to compare it to NBA 2K20 since my experiences were so negative with that. And uh, yeah, going back to this game, my recollection was correct. And uh, it's actually just a really good game. Nice. <laughs> Everything about it is just awesome. The characters move on a dime, which means that the inputs feel incredibly responsive as opposed to NBA 2K20, which is like you have to wait for the characters to turn around and stuff. You know, things that don't make any sense. If you pass the ball here, it's like an immediate pass. And maybe your guy's like even looking the wrong direction and he'll just pass it behind his head like a OG, you know, <laughs> it's so fun. And um, everything about it just it reminds me of like why video games are great, because I could play NBA 2K20 and be like all simulation and it's exactly real life. But then I could play this game and do like crazy double alley-oops between the leg 360 no look, you know, <laughs> dunks and stuff. And it's just so fun. And right. there's so many things about it that I kind of forgot. One thing I tried to pay attention to was the soundtrack in NBA 2K20. I just really didn't like it. I mean, I'm not like the biggest like rap and hip hop guy, but I remembered liking the soundtrack to NBA Street. And sure enough, in NBA Street 2, the soundtrack is awesome. It's, I guess, old school rap It's the best way to describe it. But they even have, like, in the intro cutscenes, uh, basically a music video of a rap song written just for the NBA street game. And it's oh, actually, nice. like, a banger, too. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really good. I love the soundtrack. I completely forgot, as well, that there is an announcer that, like, narrates the game as it happens. And the announcer's name is DJ Cucumber Slice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh it's just so fun when you do like a big trick and you make someone fall over and he's just on the mic going like oh broke your ankles you know <laughs> we're like man your defense looks like swiss cheese you know or whatever full of holes oh <laughs> so, so good. good yeah i just love it and um i wanted to play the game just to kind of remind myself of how it was but of course i can't i can't put it down now like i'm just like all i want to do is play more i'm playing uh, there's a, like a story mode that's pretty cool and uh you kind of build your baller up with skill points you get along the way and stuff and it's just really fun <laughs> it's a really really fun game so i'm really happy i went back and checked it out now i'm like even more in the old school mindset i'm like i need to go back and play all these right yeah the one that I want to do next, I'm really excited about. I think I have it for the original Xbox somewhere at my parents' home. So I'll have to go back and see where it is or what console I got it on. But I want to go play uh, Jedi Knight. Do you remember that game? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's two of them, I think, that are made for consoles. And I want to go play them both. I think that'd be really fun. So <laughs> I think that's next on my list. But we'll see how long it takes for me to put down NBA Street 2. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. I'm glad you ended up getting a chance to uh, take a look at it and that it lived up to expectations. Yeah, it's basically everything I wanted and more. <laughs> <laughs> At first, when I went into it, I was like, oh, these graphics don't look as good as I remember. 
and I was a little worried about it. And then as soon as I started playing, you really don't notice it because the gameplay is so fast paced. You're always doing something and um, it just feels really good. Like, <laughs> I don't understand how NBA 2K20 could be so bad and so not fun to play. And then this game is like, just gets it perfect. I mean, it's what you want. I don't know. For those of you listening out there, if you haven't played it, please go check it out. It's like worth it. So it is 3v3 instead of 5v5. So maybe that helps with like not colliding with people as much and stuff. But in my opinion, it's just lazy game development by the games of today. So I don't know about that. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it kind of sounds like a conflict, which I feel like is in a couple different genres of like, is the arcade you know, kind of do whatever you want and make use of the fact that you're playing a video game so it doesn't have to follow rules of the real world. You know, right. like make it kind of fun NBA street style versus the I want to play as if I am like a guy in an actual NBA game. Uh, NBA 2K. Yeah. Is it 2K? 20K? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 2K20. 2K20. Like uh, in that style. And I'm sure there are fans of the simulation style. I mean, it kind of depends on the genre. I think there's a, a lot of sports games now that are going much more like simulation feel instead of just, you know, hitting these crazy shots in hockey or whatever it is. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thing. I'm sure there's fans of both, but I'm definitely more in your camp where, like, I just want it to be fun and out there. Yeah. Well, to me, I understand some of the simulation aspects, but to me, like, Having kind of input lag because your character has to actually move physically, it's just like bad game design. Like, I know it might be more realistic, but it just feels terrible. Right. It doesn't feel responsive. <laughs> yeah. Like, so in my mind, you know, maybe it doesn't make sense that someone can turn around like instantly. But um, I don't know. I wouldn't really say that's like arcadey necessarily. It's just good game movement to some degree, you yeah, know? Yeah, definitely. So, but yeah, I'm really glad I went back and played it. I might play NBA Street 3 and or NBA Street 1. I think NBA Street 1 is the one that has the Yeti in it, <laughs> which I kind of <laughs> want to play. You can play as a Yeti. And I don't remember NBA Street very much. I think I played mainly 2 as a kid, 2 and 1. But I think I had all 3, actually. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, I'm really enjoying it. But what have you been up to, Wes? You playing new games or old games? <laughs> well, um, a little bit of a... I've played it before on the podcast, Mountain Blade, Bannerlord. I might get that soon, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's an alpha, so I guess you could say it's a new game, but I've played it before and I've had it for like six months, so it's kind of an old game. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they've made a lot of incremental bug fix kind of changes to it. Mm-hmm. Nothing that just like blew the doors off and I was like, holy cow, it's a brand new game. But it's kind of fine because when I originally bought it, it was already had most of what I was expecting from a mountain blade. uh, And I always feel like I have to say mount and blade because we had a friend who always thought it was a mountain blade. Very, very easy uh, (laughs) misunderstanding, especially the way I say it. But it had pretty much everything I wanted out of a sequel for the first one. And now it just seems like they're adding crazy stuff, like fun little details, like all of the different regions, the areas where you fight in the tournaments, the arenas look a Mm -hmm. lot different per region and per like the ethnicity of the area and stuff like that so that's really cool they always had different ways that you fought in each of those like the nomadic horse people like your own horseback for every single fight whereas the 
Imperials, which are basically like the Romans or whatever. You're always shield and sword for every fight there. But the visual differences are really nice that they've been adding. The bug fixes are cool. The main story is actually really interesting, which is never something I really thought about in Mountain Blade. Mm-hmm. There's like your brother is trying to work with you to get your two little siblings back who uh, have been captured by bandits and you can follow that. And after you beat the first part of that quest, your brother just turns into like an NPC, like all the other characters in the game. So you can recruit him onto your team and stuff like that. Hopefully you don't have to pay him as much as the other people on your team, but maybe, that, maybe that's like reverse nepotism. Maybe that's not fair, but it's, it's interesting because it feels a lot more like you can build sort of stories with the companions and the people on your team more than you could before. You can set it so that companions just straight up die if they get killed. I don't think I'll be doing that anytime soon because as much as I love the game, either a combination of I'm not good enough at it or it's just so random or there's a lot of variance, I guess is a good way to say it. I wouldn't say it's random, but like an arrow could roll like XCOM style a 10% chance and headshot your companion and they're dead. Right. So I don't really want to mess with any of that. But I also think and I don't know if this is tied to that setting at all, that the like lords and vassals of other regions can now just straight up die, which they couldn't in the first game, if I remember right. Right. Does that mean that new ones get appointed? Yes. It yeah. must, right? Yeah. As far as I know, new ones get appointed. If you play the game for enough time, people actually age and die, which is really cool. So there's like mm-hmm. families and heirs and generations. Nice. And I don't know how in-depth that is yet or how in-depth they're planning to make it, but even just like any little bit they add to that aspect of the game is really awesome. Kind of reminds me of that, um, what is it called, the Nemesis system from the Lord of the Rings games? Yes, like, yeah. It's not that far from that. Like if a normal soldier like killed you and then became, a, became some sort of general in that army or something, that would be awesome. Yeah, yeah. That would be so cool. And I'm sure it's not that sophisticated, nor... Is that really the goal of the game? Like, I, I don't, I haven't right. checked out the development plans, but I doubt they would make it that crazy. But just the basic concept of it's really similar. They do react in ways that, like, if you capture a lord in an opposing faction's army, and instead of ransoming them or releasing them, you execute them. Apparently, that uh, causes a lot of negative reactions, as you might expect. Because <laughs> my, my friend was doing that in his playthrough and just like, offing every single one of them and i guess somebody else would replace them and then just basically everybody hated them (laughs) (laughs) so it's nice that there's consequences like that i'm still waiting to get to that phase of the game because i always get stuck in just being like a roving small party that just fights bandits and sells gear and fights in tournaments which is really fun and it's a sandbox game so really there's no wrong way to play it but i do want to get to that like upper level kingdom management kind of phase of it which is really hard from what I hear, as it was in the first game. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it's so good, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's awesome. I can't wait to get to those castle sieges, which are much more advanced than this, as far as positioning of your troops. I've been experimenting a lot more with the actual formations of the troops, and there's some crazy stuff you can do. Hmm. I learned that there's certain formations that make it harder for enemy archers to hit, because your men are just, like, not as close together. Right. And there were some bandits that I used to just not be able to beat at all because they all had bows. And it's just like, okay, I'm dead, basically. But this helps out so much. So I'm having fun digging into it a lot deeper than I have previously. And I'm kind of 
at least for now, I'm, I think I'm pretty dedicated to trying to get good at it. I want to be able to like lead an army against insurmountable odds kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I love the, that game. I have to get it. I'll get it soon. That and um, Cyberpunk that's coming out, I'll probably get. So yes. Yeah. There's going to be some good stuff on the horizon. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And I'm, I'm excited to hear about your experiences once you get a uh, Mountain Blade, too. Oh, yeah. Definitely. All right. Um, why don't we move on to the special topic? I don't know if this is going to be a long one or not. Uh, I kind of doubt it, but we're going to be talking about the Pascal programming language, which before I get into it, I just wanted to quickly say, I think last year we talked about the pilot programming language. And from what I've seen in the research and through these magazines and stuff, no one's talking about that <laughs> language anymore. So Pascal seems to be the new big one. And uh, it seems like pilot's kind of dead, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. But yeah, we're going to talk about Pascal. We had a really nice write-up about Pascal in the January issue of People's Computers. But, you know, we've just been busy since January, so we're just getting to it now. But let me start off by saying a couple little things about Pascal, and maybe Wes can go into it a little bit more in depth. But it was created by a guy named Nicholas Wirth, and he really made it to be a small and efficient language that encouraged good programming practices. It was obviously named in honor of the French mathematician, Pascal. And it wasn't just like developed out of nowhere. Apparently, Worth and his team were developing this and had many iterations of it, stemming back from something called Algol. I think it was like Algol 60, then Algol X, and Algol W. And then finally, this new version, they just changed the name to Pascal, which I kind of like. <laughs> but uh, as far as like what it could do, it's getting into territory where I don't really know exactly, but it, it involves data structures, variables, arrays, lists, trees, and graphs, and apparently was picked up and used by a lot of people and was pretty common, especially in university-level programming courses in the early 80s. It was also used for writing even commercial software during that period, and the one machine that it really saw widespread use on was the Apple II, which as we know is going to be, you know, one of the best computers of this cycle for sure. And uh, because of its kind of fame and, and use on the Apple II, it's going to continue being popular on Macs and uh, other Apple products in the early 80s especially. So um, I thought also one of the commercial softwares that used this during this time was actually Photoshop, which I thought was really interesting. The earliest versions of Photoshop used Pascal programming language. Oh, neat. And although the language wasn't perfect, it had a lot of iterations over the next 10 plus years, but it was eventually replaced by the C programming language, which I think is still common today. So we might come back to this a little bit later and talk about those next iterations if really big changes are made, but for now, this is the base version of Pascal, and it seems to be the next big thing, you know, the, the next hot <laughs> language. And unlike Pilot, I think this one's going to be sticking around for a while. So, yeah, yeah, it definitely seems like it. And to give a little bit more of an idea of how it differed from Basic, a very popular language at the time, uh, I took a look at that write-up that Ben mentioned in the People's Computers January-February issue, which was basically a guy who was a big fan of Pascal comparing Pascal and BASIC and saying no one should use BASIC. <laughs> and at the time, I guess, I think Pascal had been 
around as a language for maybe a while before January of 78? I think just like a year, maybe. Yeah, but it was just being started to be used in microprocessor implementations in 78, uh, which I can't say that I have a good understanding of exactly what that means, other than that it was basically microprocessors were able to effectively use this language that had already existed. So the article makes this really funny comparison right at the beginning, saying, you know, it'd be crazy if someone found this new processor and said, you know, let's just not use it, even though it's much more powerful, because people already know how to use the old processor. (laughs) Uh, And making a direct comparison between Pascal and BASIC, he puts together a nice list of all the features that this has that BASIC doesn't. But I just wanted to list some of the ones that I at least like tangentially understand. Uh, Pascal allowed for integer division, which wasn't allowed in BASIC. It allowed use of the Boolean data types, like if and or operators, I think, and stuff like that in the coding language. And I think Boolean's more more like uh, on and off or yes and no type deal. Okay. okay. That's how it's used in in, uh, Unity anyway. Okay, yeah, I know, I know in um, see, my, my background is library search engines and Boolean <laughs> operators are uh, or and and. And in Java, okay. actually, I think they are. So maybe there's a couple different uses for it. But it allowed for those, which is kind of mind-blowing that BASIC couldn't do that. And it also allowed for arrays of characters instead of just integer arrays, which BASIC couldn't do. Uh, so basically, it's a lot of stuff in the background that gave it a lot more functionality. The writer was talking about how it would be very difficult for someone in BASIC to try and think of how to get a program to respond to a keyboard input of Y or N. And apparently it's just one line in Pascal to be able to do that. Hmm. And so to sum it all up, basically, he writes the last two words of his whole review are just BAN BASIC in all caps. (laughs) So this guy at least was adamant about Pascal. But from the very beginning of this comparison, it seems like it could just do a whole lot more. Yeah. And so uh, if we talk about Pascal or we see some of these games coming up that use Pascal, we'll be sure to let you guys know. I think for now, we're probably going to be mainly seeing them in Apple II stuff and maybe also games that come from some magazines. Because at least in the hobbyist world, it seems to be really taken off, so... If we see it, we'll mention it, and hopefully you guys will have some idea of where it came from and why we're seeing it. So, yeah, until the next iteration, that's been Pascal, and we'll bring it over to the games. Welcome back from that beautiful musical interlude. I think by now I should have some new programs. So if you heard some new instruments playing, that's my new toys. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But uh, as of recording this episode, I don't have them yet. So I'm sad. But uh, (laughs) let's get into the games. We're going to start by talking about some Fairchild Channel F games, the first ones of 1978. And I'll be honest, Wes, I'm pretty glad to see the Fairchild. I don't know. It's like... Well, the old thing that's like not good, but you still love it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> so I'm glad that they're still here making good games for us. Although this first cartridge, 
it's maybe not the best. It's a uh, video cart 15. As a reminder, all dates for Channel Left games, we don't have a month date. So I just took two or three at a time and kind of spaced them out between the months. So this is the first one of 78, but I'm not quite sure what month it came out. But for Video Cart 15, it came out with mainly two games on the cartridge. They're both concentration games, otherwise known as memory match games. I always think of these like the, uh, there's like a mini game in, I think, Mario 3, right? That has this. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. essentially, you flip over two cards or something at a time, and you're just trying to memorize what they were and then match the two symbols together after turning over a bunch of cards. So the first game modes had a six by four grid of cards. And when you flipped them over, there was a game mode that was showed numbers. And then there was a game mode that showed symbols, which obviously doesn't make any difference, but it's, it's just a different look, I guess. And then the second game modes were the same thing, but it was a 10 by four grid. So a harder one, I guess. But, uh, I don't think either of them are that, that hard. And to me, <laughs> the, uh, the cartridge was a uh, pretty boring. So, Let's move on to the next one. Yeah, next up we have a much more interesting one. Video Cart 16, Dodge It. And oh, so yeah. this is one that I got to play an emulator of, take a couple looks at videos and the packaging for, and it's a good one, so I'm excited. Uh, the box art for it, of course, is that typical style that we've seen with a bunch of multicolor designs on it, and the whole uh, package itself is mainly black. This one's pretty nice. It just has like goofy people dodging a bunch of dodgeballs that are flying at them from all different angles, which is pretty accurate for what the game is. The game itself did have pro and amateur modes and also one to two players. So getting into the gameplay for it, it's either one or two players, depending on the game mode, that spawn inside a field that's a randomly generated size. It's basically this red box, and then the inside of that red box is the play field. Balls will come out of the walls every 100 points until there are nine balls in play. And the way that the points work in this is they're basically just counting up as long as you haven't been hit yet. And every 1,000 points, all the nine balls gather in the center of the screen and then explode outwards uh, <laughs> at a bunch of different angles. And so basically the whole goal of it, as the title says, is you have to dodge balls as long as you can to get as many points as you can. I think it was either on the cartridge or on the packaging. It says, you know, try your best to get to 9999. So you would have to live through nine of those explosions and nine balls on the screen for like the majority of the gameplay, which is a lot. In the two-player mode, the scoring is slightly different. The round ends whenever one player dies, and the player that didn't get hit gets the score from that round added to their total score. Uh, and I don't know how many rounds you could play if it reset at any point, but it looks like it was kind of just try not to be the first one to get hit. And so every round, whether it's one player or two player, the play field is randomly generated, meaning the size and also the shape. It was always a rectangle, but it could be like this really thin hallway, or it could be this big open play field and also every single round the ball and player size and the ball and player speed were randomly generated so you could have some rounds where like the balls are taking up half of the screen but then your player is like one pixel large and just like super fast right. or something like that 
So it's all over the place. You know, I'm sure there were limits because your character never got like big enough that it took up the whole screen or anything. Like there was upper and lower limits, but it was still pretty variable, which was really interesting. Uh, the player can move in eight directions. Again, with the Fairchild, it's those weird like lightsaber joystick bop it style controllers. <laughs> right. So I'm pretty sure you could move in eight directions with that. And the balls also bounce off of the walls and each other throughout the whole game. So when you get those tight cor- corridor maps, it's a little crazy. But getting into the graphics for this, I gave it a 1.5 out of 10. There's nothing too new here. It's still a Fairchild game, so it's got the like white, light greenish background, and the main colors are the blue, red, and green objects that are on the screen. Uh, in Dodge It, though, there's a simple red rectangle outline for a playfield, blue or green squares for the players, and the balls are red squares that come flying out of the walls. Some of the interesting things, though, that Dodge It does, when the balls leave the walls, because I guess the implication is that coming out from the walls, sometimes they leave empty space where they were, but not all the time. So I don't know if it was a glitch or if it was an intended effect, but it's pretty interesting. You get like these weird carved out sections where the balls came flying out towards you. Although those, as far as I could tell, don't act as like new play space. I don't think the balls could get stuck in those or anything. And so as you can imagine with nine balls on the screen, it gets pretty visually hectic and the balls do like flicker on and off a lot as they're moving. But overall, it kind of manages the chaos pretty well visually. Like you can tell what's going on most of the time. It's fast and it's hard to keep track of everything, but that's not like a graphical failing, I don't think really. And the best graphical effect in this whole game is this really weird round end screen that they did where just alternating colors of squares show up on the screen and they get progressively smaller as they show up. And it creates this neat like pyramid sort of kaleidoscope effect. It's really simple, but for whatever reason, it looks great. And it's awesome that just happens at the end of every single round. And so for the sounds, I gave it a 1.5 out of 10. Again, we're talking about the Fairchild. There's nothing new going on here, but Dodge uses the sounds that it has really well, I think. It's typical Pong beeps for the balls ricocheting off the walls, but there are two different tones. And when you have nine balls on screen at once, two different tones is enough to make it sound like super fun and chaotic. It's just like constant weird bouncing noises and all that. And other than that, the best noise accompanies the graphical effect at the round end, where as the squares are being drawn on the screen, there's like this fast series of kind of clicking beeps that speed up as the squares get smaller and just adds like this really cool effect to it and it also plays this lower slower beeping tone as the screen refreshes which kind of gives the feeling that like it's being wiped away for the new stage i don't know it's hard to describe but it's something about this weird visual effect that they did and the sounds that they did to accompany it work really well together then getting into the gameplay which is kind of 
I feel like where a lot of these Fairchild games excel with all the simple stuff they have, they make these crazy games. And I feel like Dodge It is no exception to that. It's a super simple concept. You know, it's just dodgeball with balls flying out of the random sides of the walls. But this, like, random variations to all of the stats, I guess you could call them, or all the uh, numbers, the values, make it really chaotic and pretty fun. It does mean that you never really know if you're actually going to have a chance of winning anytime you load into a new match. Uh, but sometimes you might get a really easy one where you're super fast and the balls are super slow. The easier runs definitely did feel kind of necessary to me, though, to be able to enjoy the game. Because otherwise, it's just like the balls are gigantic, they're going super fast, and then you rolled the dice, and for whatever reason, your character's gigantic too, so you have nowhere to hide. Right. And it's pretty fun, but it doesn't like. I'm sure you can get good at it, but it didn't feel super skill based. It kind of felt like, okay, I rolled a good random modifiers on everything, and then now I can kind of dodge or sit in one corner and hope that they don't hit me. And they do land exactly in the corner a lot of the time, the balls, which, you know, your brain says, like, oh, like the DVD screensaver, that's a safe space. If I hide in the corner, no, they will land like <laughs> pixel perfect in there and just squash you, which is hilarious. And one of my favorite parts about the gameplay, which is also somehow my least favorite part about the gameplay probably, is the balls bouncing off of each other. Because when there's nine on screen, if you get a small play field, there is no way to predict where it's going. Uh, when there's three on the screen, it's like, okay, this one's going to hit the wall, come down, and you can kind of map it out. But when there's nine, it's not just the walls, it's all the other balls that you have to worry about them bouncing off of. And the angles are just like impossible to calculate, which is part of what makes it fun and interesting, but just super difficult. And I forget if I said at the beginning of that, but because of all that, I gave it a two out of 10 for gameplay. So then for relevance, I gave it a five out of 10. I don't think Dodge It really does much different than other Pong type games, but it does feel like one of the first solely like dodging type games that we've had. I don't really know how much it's going to influence, but it's this cool concept. It's on the Fairchild. We love to see it. So I feel like it's at least semi-relevant for just being another interesting, weird thing that Fairchild thought up. And so overall, I gave it a 2 out of 10. Dodge It is just super solid. It has pretty dang good visuals and sounds for a Fairchild game. And it has this fun, frantic gameplay, which does kind of screw you over a lot of the time because of the random modifiers, but that's also what makes it so fun. It's brutal, and there's definitely situations where you just can't win it, but that's also part of what or what gives the game a lot of replayability, I think, because you never really know what the round's going to look like when you get into it. And that's pretty much all I had for uh, Dodge It. It's a, another just like totally caught me off guard kind of fair child game. Like I wasn't expecting it to be good. Mm -hmm. And just like right. squares bouncing on a screen. Yeah. But somehow they just, you know, they make it fun with their weird random modifiers or whatever else they throw into it. I feel like it's like the perfect example of how Fairchild, like maybe each game, each cartridge isn't like the best on its own, but like the Fairchild library is like building up, man. Like if you had a whole line of games in your living room or whatever, I would totally pull out Dodge It every now and then, you know? Right, yeah, and switch back with that in, like, Space War or some of the other right. just random Fairchild gems that we have. 
yeah. So I think it's a, a good addition to the lineup for sure. I'm glad you liked it. I was hoping, even though it's kind of pongy, that it was different enough, and it seems like it was, which is great. Yeah, Fairchild always does something a little special. Yeah. So let's keep it moving. We got one more Fairchild one here for you guys. Video Cart 17. This one's called Pinball Challenge. But despite the name having to do with pinball, it's actually just a breakout clone. <laughs> so it, it <laughs> plays breakout games. And um, I thought about rating it, but I mean, it's not really anything different from breakout. So we're just going to honorable mention it. Some of the variations that were included with this version of breakout included the paddles changing sizes and having like a two player mode. And they actually had a two player mode that was cooperative. So it was just kind of two paddles trying to protect, protect the ball from not leaving the screen essentially. So hmm. kind of interesting, but uh, nothing too crazy. And then next up, we're going to talk about a series of games released by PowerSoft, uh, who released a bunch of cassette games for the Apple II. The first one that we want to mention is Space Maze by none other than Bob Bishop. It feels weird to that we have like this recurring creator for Apple II games where we can look at it, and at this point we're like, oh yeah, that's a Bob Bishop game, because he right. uses the uh, <laughs> Lunar Lander, or I forget what his version was called, but the explosion from that game and like all that stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, but Space Maze is another Star Wars game. It uses the TIE Fighter model from his previous Star Wars game, and you're just flying through a maze without touching any of the walls, basically. And it would seem kind of interesting, except for the maze isn't random. It's the same every single time, so it's neat, but he's kind of just reusing all the stuff he already had to make a slightly different game. Another one here by PowerSoft is called Apple Derby. It seems to be another horse racing betting game. It was in color, though, and you could watch the horses move around the track, although the horses in this case were just squares. But <laughs> I guess you could watch it and uh, lose your money or whatever. <laughs> oh, the joy of gambling virtually. And then the last one that we have for the PowerSoft series of games is Cubic by Paul Justin. It seems like a pretty nice visual 3D-ish type of display for a game of 3D tic-tac-toe. And we really wanted to check it out because we mentioned Cubic, it feels like, almost every week or almost every time that a new basic journal comes out and they have a list of games. Uh, but this seemed like a really good version of it. Unfortunately, we weren't able to find emulation that we could get to load. So hopefully there's going to be another Cubic out there that's good that we can check out. Definitely. And moving on from the PowerSoft games, we wanted to mention SD Chess by Ira Baxter along with Blitz 6.5, Mike, and Ostrich, and plenty of others, which were all computer chess programs that played in a computer chess tournament in 1978. It doesn't appear like they were ever sold, but at least the SD chess we know did have a graphical display on it. If I remember right, it actually, like, the pieces looked distinctly different from one another, so it seemed pretty nice, actually, but uh, was never sold, so I'm just going to leave that there. And that's going to move me to the first one I rated today. I decided to go back and rate another Magnavox Odyssey home console. It's Ooh, been a long time, Wes. It sure has. <laughs> uh, just so you guys get a quick previous history, the original Magnavox Odyssey was the first ever home console, and we covered that in at least two episodes, you know, just by itself, which we really loved, actually. And then for some reason... 
Maybe it's because they were bought out by a company called Philips. I don't really know the reason, but they released a bunch of Odyssey sequels after that, and all of them were just AY whatever chips, most of them 8500s, which was a really big letdown. But um, we're back finally now. There's one here that isn't just a chip that we've already played. It's a new chip. Oh, man. And it's a first-generation console, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll see what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> The chip in question is by National Semiconductor, which we have heard before, and this is actually the last chip that they're going to make, so it's a little extra relevant there. But the the chip number is MM57186, and then the 57106 is the uh, the US version, but they both play the same games. In total, it's marketed as having 23 games, which is not accurate. Right. <laughs> it's really only 6. And then they had a bunch of quote-unquote variants, which were just like, you're playing against a computer. No, you're not. You're playing against a second person. Oh, or man. Like, no, you're not. Like, it's one person, and then you, like, hand off the controller, which I have no <laughs> clue why you would do. But um, <laughs> those were the variations. None of the variations actually had any real differences. So it's mainly just these six games. But let's get into the games. I'm going to go through the really easy ones first. There's a bunch from the like National Semiconductor's old chips. So you had just normal straight-up tennis, which is Pong. You have handball, which we've heard and done a million times, which is one or two play- players versus a wall. In this case, it was done maybe a little bit better, where if you're playing two players, each player is a different color paddle, and then whichever player's turn it is to hit the ball next is the only paddle on the screen. So the other person paddle disappears. So that makes handball a little bit better. But then you also had ice hockey, which is just a pong with two paddles, essentially. And then probably the uh, the one that's most recognizable from National Semiconductor's last chip is one called football, otherwise known as soccer. And that's pong, but there's six moving obstacles. They're like little dots. Since... um. National Semiconductor's first chip. We've seen other companies do this. Like I think the Nintendo consoles kind of had something similar to this. These ones are moving, and there's three on each side, and they're just are there to be obstacles. Essentially, you can't control them. But those are like the boring games. So let me get into the the two games that are kind of a little bit interesting. One is called Wipeout, and that's basically a two-player version of Clean Sweep. We both like Clean Sweep a lot. I mean, I definitely like Clean Sweep. This is a little different. So basically you've got two paddles on either side and then a bunch of little dots in the middle. Unlike the original clean sweep where the ball went right through the dots and you just kind of collect them and your score would get higher. In this case, the dots actually have collision, which is very strange Hmm. because there's a lot of room in between the dots. So it's pretty easy just to get the ball kind of in the middle of the pile and then it hits like a bajillion dots. (laughs) (laughs) kind of uh, in a breakout style. And um, it kind of means that whoever gets like that first hit in is going to get a lot of points, which is very strange. But whoever hit the ball last, they're going to get all the points that that ball then hits into the little dots on the screen. So it's not quite clean sweep because the dots have collision and stuff. It's not quite breakout because they're not like in a solid line, like there's space in between. It's kind of this weird hybrid. I don't think I like it as much as either of those two games, but um, 
it's okay, I guess. <laughs> it's different. It's unique. And so then the last game that this console has is called Flipper. And this is essentially a port of Ricochet from Noting Associates that I reviewed not too long ago. And that itself was a clone of TV Pinball by Exidy, which I think came out in like 74. Mm. So I'm a little surprised we haven't seen this on a home console yet, but it's TV Pinball on a home console. And I don't know how much you remember about this one, but it's essentially Pong, but it's more like a like a pinball emulation that has like a pong paddle instead of the flippers at right. the bottom. So you've got a pong paddle, you're trying to hit the ball and make it not go past you. But then it's also hitting off these obstacles that are permanent. You know, it hits and bounces off and you get points whenever you hit it. There's a moving obstacle that you can try to hit. And then there's these pockets along the walls of the screen. And if the ball goes in there, it stays in there for a little bit and your score goes up a lot. And then it gets shot out of those pockets kind of at a random angle. And that's uh, that's Flipper. There was a two-player version of this, which seems a little complicated, but um, <laughs> I guess it worked. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think, I think that was the most interesting one because I actually kind of really enjoyed Ricochet when I checked it out. And so having it off on a home console is pretty cool. But those are the six games and... Yeah, I would say a good four of them are kind of really not worth your time. <laughs> but uh, let me get into the ratings. I'm going to start with graphics. The game is in true color. I mean, it's just a bunch of Pong games, but at least it's in true color. Also, sometimes when there was more than two paddles on the screen, some of the paddles would be striped. We've seen that a bunch of times, but it's a really good just implementation of paddles, and I like it a lot. And then some of the games were more colorful and had more stuff going on like flipper the the tv pinball game which had the moving elements like some sometimes there's moving obstacle elements in the pockets and stuff so it had a little bit more than usual but a good amount of these games are just like pong you know right (laughs) yeah so i just gave it a 1.25 out of 10 for the graphics it's in true color that has some nice stuff it has score and all that but um it's just Pong. <laughs> so, and we've seen that just too many times by now. Let me get to sound. This is the one that made me the most angry because we've got one Pong sound, which already is like not forgivable in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Considering we're in 78 now, just to have one Pong sound. But um, also, it's like barely used. Like in TV Pinball, arguably the best game. In the original version, like the Ricochet version I checked out, whenever you hit a pocket or hit a bumper or something, you'd get these like almost doorbell sounds that were supposed to be kind of pinball sounds. But in this game, when you hit a pocket, it's silent. There's nothing that plays. And also, whenever somebody scores, so even if you're playing just normal Pong, if you hit it off the walls or you hit it off the paddles, you hear that Pong sound. But if somebody scores, it's silent. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what? You don't even have like a eh or something when somebody right. messes up. To me, that's like unforgivable. <laughs> so I gave it as low as I possibly could without giving it a zero, which I did think about, but I gave it a 0.25 out of 10 <laughs> for sound. <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, the Pong sound, it's good, but it's just one. I mean, it'll get on your nerves. Right.
that leaves me with gameplay. This was a kind of a hard one. I kind of enjoyed the Clean Sweep clone called Wipeout, but it doesn't feel as good as Clean Sweep or Breakout. It feels like kind of a combination of the both and not a very good way. So it's got problems. And then TV Pinball is really good, but without all of those like doorbell sounds and the excitement of trying to play some sort of pinball thing that maybe has like alternating colors or something, it's just, you know, pong sounds and silence and it's just boring. I don't know. Maybe it's just been outdated now that I've seen it before. So I like it. But um, those are the only two real games, and then the other four are basically not worth playing. So I just gave it a 1 out of 10 for gameplay. It was, um, it's not 23 games, so that, that hurt it for sure. <laughs> Especially when, like, the Atari 2600 could actually be, like, 23 unique different games. <laughs> right, yeah. By now. So that moves me to relevance. I gave it a 6 out of 10 for relevance. Magnavox is obviously one of the go-tos for home consoles even though a lot of them have been pretty bad they're probably like some of the best selling pretty bad ones and i do know for a fact that the odyssey 2100 sold pretty well especially in europe and in places like germany it apparently is like still pretty common to find not only that but these chips that it uses are the last chips ever from national semiconductor who did have a hand in the early history of video games and then consoles so Seeing the end of them, I'm not going to be too sad about it, but um, I kind of wanted to give it a little bit of relevance just because of that. And so overall, I gave it a very solid score of 0.75 out of 10. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, you got to do something a little bit better than just give me like Pong <laughs> if you want some good scores. So it did have two kind of interesting, unique games, but two out of six is not very good. And when they're Pong games... For just, you know, you're buying a whole home console for this, essentially. You're going to need to do a little bit better, so. <laughs> Yikes, yeah, that, that sounds uh, not great. <laughs> it just kind of goes to show the evolution of our podcast, I think, because a year ago or two years ago, like having Pong games in full color with striped paddles and a sound would have been pretty good. Right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In 78. I don't know. It's just not enough. And I mean, the as soon as you said sounds not good, I was like, man, they if you're making a pinball game, the pockets or spinners or whatever you want to call them, they've got to make noise. Like I know. <laughs> before you even yeah. said it, I'm like, that's the thing that makes like the most noise in the pinball machine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The flippers could be silent and more beeps in the spinners would be so much better. <laughs> It really would have been. I mean, it's the best game on the console. So to have that one not be amazing hurts the whole console, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, you know what I will say, though? I know for a fact that this is not going to be the last of Magnavox or Philips that we're going to see this year. And what we're going to see later is going to be better. So I'm glad we got this one out of the way. (laughs) Good, yeah. They, uh, They aren't taking the spot yet of our like console darling that uh odyssey started off and then now fairchild's taking our hearts yep. odyssey's gonna have to work hard to uh win it back and i don't know if it's gonna get there <laughs> but with that uh disappointment no i'm just being mean now but <laughs> let's move on to a computer game that i didn't end up rating just because we had a lot of information on it but i didn't feel like i had enough to really give it a fair shake, I guess. 
Uh, but so we're going to be talking about Library by Nat Howard, which came out in 1978. It's a computer game which was based on the Wander system of games that is a sort of coding language framework written by Peter Langston for the text adventure game Wander. And from what I understand, he sort of made this like framework where you could add in your own verbs and keywords and locations and flavor text and all that and make sort of a functioning text adventure game out of it. Mm -hmm. So library is one of those. All the info that we have on this game is from two different blogs that we took a look at, the Blue Ranga blog and the CRPG Adventures blog. We both were able to get this running and do a playthrough of it. So talking about the backgrounds of library, it's a text adventure game with a map based on a library, you guessed it, uh, but specifically Widener Library at Harvard. I don't know too much about Nat Howard, but I'm guessing he was probably a student at Harvard at the time, or at least nearby, because there's some things that both the blogs uh, talk about when they were playing this that just seem like Harvard in-jokes that they didn't really get. <laughs> <laughs> like referencing like people of like Harvard mythology, I guess, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's just stuff that I don't understand and they didn't get either. Like there's one section where he's talking about a chapel that's on the Harvard campus, I think. And they describe what I'm guessing is like him trying to make it sound like, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. In this game, you're in a post-apocalyptic version of the Widener Library at Harvard. So he presents this chapel as if like you're trying to piece together what happened there. And you're like, yeah, it looks like they did this ceremony here, something, something about the important person named Bo Diddley. And I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> but so there's a bunch of weird stuff in it like that. Apparently a gnome with a knife lives in Harvard now in this post-apocalyptic version of it. And according to the CRPG Adventures blog, it was never completely finished. Uh, the two blogs who played through this, they noticed several different bugs, a lot of areas marked as under construction, and some just like other inaccessible areas that seem like they should be accessible. And it doesn't seem like there's a official like game end or like a way to win. It does tell you at the very beginning of it that the whole point of the game is to capture to find three different treasures within the library, um, which I'll talk about later because what the treasures are is hilarious. But when you bring them to the final point, nothing happens if you bring them all back and you actually lose score because they're no longer in your inventory, which is kind of funny. So throughout this game, there's tons of references to popular media of the time, but it does do an interesting thing where it takes it through the lens of like this weird, distorted, post-apocalyptic world so there's a star trek room which at the time that this game was written was like very current but it's talking about it as if like part of this library had been turned into a museum for star trek and there's like a whole bridge of the star trek enterprise in there and <laughs> there's plastic vulcan ears on the ground which i don't think you can do anything with but you could probably take them and put them in your leather bag that you carry around with you there's rooms with puzzles in them that are dedicated to I think a mystery author named Raymond Chandler and then several different sci-fi authors, Andre Norton and Michael Moorcock. 
and several items that appear in their different sci-fi stories are like key items throughout this game. I didn't know anything about any of these people. It was the uh, CRPG Adventures who pointed out that these were all famous authors at the time. Uh, so it's weird. There's sort of references to all these authors. Some of them he'll like make fun of as he's describing the rooms. Some of them he might not have liked these authors, or he's just joking around. It's interesting stuff. The person who wrote the game, I meant, not the CRPG Adventures. And there's also one section that you walk into where it's called the gaming room or the gaming library, something like that. And there's a console playing Colossal Cave Adventure where someone died trying to play it because they couldn't figure out how to solve the dragon puzzle, which is pretty <laughs> nice. hilarious. Like the flavor text is like, the screen says, do you really want to punch the dragon with your fist? Yes or no. And then <laughs> the person just died, I guess, because they couldn't figure it out. And then there's some really weird stuff in this game. Apparently, I doubt this is in the real library, but in the post-apocalyptic version of Widener Library, there's a whole erotic book section with sex toys all over the place. <laughs> Which okay. you can you try. I really need to include that. Yeah, yeah. He's like specifically like this section of the library seems like it was definitely raided. I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. And <laughs> But specifically, there's an item that's a sex toy, which, whatever. But if you try to pick it up, it tells you that you can't because somebody might might be watching. <laughs> it's just like, all right, I don't think there's any point to that. Sure, maybe it's just like this weird, funny thing. But I was just like, that's oh, strange. Whatever, man. <laughs> <laughs> but it's different. I mean, I got to give them that, I guess. Adding some unique locations. One of the other weird factors of this is that the first thing you run across in the game is a leather sack that you use to store items as you walk through the game. But to retrieve the items, you don't say like, get sword or something like that. You have to enter the sack and then you walk into the leather sack, which is like space-time bending somehow, like you fit inside it. <laughs> and then you just like pick the item up and you take it out of the <laughs> sack. So unless the wording is just not explicit and like it literally means like your hand is entering the bag it just seems a little bit strange you better not have like a limited inventory space <laughs> <laughs> i mean it seems kind of like hermione's bag in harry potter right like you can just throw anything in there there's a whole library down there well that mm -hmm. would be a real uh, inception kind of situation but so that's basically the interesting background about it the game itself is just a classic text adventure kind of game you navigate using the cardinal directions. Every time you walk into a room, it says, here's what's in the room. Here's some objects. Here's what you do with it. You can pick up items, and each item is sort of used to solve specific puzzles. And you have to type in specific words and item names to solve those puzzles. Some situations with these games, as I saw with Colossal Cave Adventure when I played it, it can be pretty confusing if you don't know exactly the word that the designer intended for you to use. There's an elevator in this game that you can go into. And instead of like use elevator or like key elevator to like unlock this thing on the elevator, you just have to type the word lock without anything else to unlock part of this elevator. So there's some very unintuitive stuff in it. And that's part of why it seems like it might be unfinished. But overall, just your typical text adventure game, except this one takes place in a very strange library in Harvard in the apocalypse. <laughs> And the three items that you have to find to beat the game, even though there's no real ending, are 
a first edition version of the Gutenberg Bible, a number one issue of Captain America in mint condition, the comic book, nice. and then a very special type of orchid flower, which is likely a reference to something from a Raymond Chandler book. I don't know, but it's in the Raymond Chandler room and it gives you like the Latin etymological name for the orchid. But apparently you have to understand that what it's telling you is a flower, even though it just like throws some Greek words at you or Latin words at you. And you have to type orchid instead of typing the name back at it to pick it up. Weird. Yeah, there's a bunch of weirdness in it, but it is an interesting CRPG and it's based on the Wander system, which I'm not too sure if we'll be seeing more on. Both these blogs said that this is the last game using that system that they would cover. I think there might be an official cassette release of this game later in the 80s or of the um, early Peter Langston Castle game. But I'm not sure how many more original ones that we will see on this. And this is also one of the few that wasn't made by Peter Langston himself, but was made by a different author. Does this make you want to write a adventure about the library where you work, Wes? <laughs> it kind of does, but I almost want to make it just like not fantasy at all. And just right. like, <laughs> you're just in a library. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> yeah, no, but it, it, it's interesting. I mean, you know, it's this neat new method of storytelling that we're seeing. It's not really the type of game that I would want to play. I like the straight fantasy kinds, but it is pretty neat. Okay. And next up, we have an honorable mention for the first book of Kim by Jim Butterfield, which featured games like Asteroid, Blackjack, Craps, Duel, Farmer Brown, Horse Race, Multi Maze, Ping Pong, and Taser. We only have code for all these games, but it seems like a lot of them are sort of just rewritten games that we've seen pretty similar things of. It's just a new language now. Yeah. I want to say Asteroid isn't like the one that everyone's thinking about. Right. Good point. <laughs> That'll come out later. <laughs> All right. But let's get to the last one of the episode. The last one I rated Journey to the Center of the Earth by Greg Hassett. And this came out for the TRS-80 sometime in 78. It's the first game written by Greg Hassett. And I couldn't get a, a second source about this, but I also was able to go to the CRPG Adventure blog and they said that Craig uh, Hassett was only 12 or 13 at the time of writing this, which seems kind of crazy, considering this is a text-based RPG. And it's actually the first like true text-based RPG that I've ever rated. I kind of was like, wait a minute, have I not done one of these before? I think it's always <laughs> been you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, it was interesting to take a look at. Let me kind of explain the game as best I can. The lore behind the game doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> I don't know. Essentially, I think you're at the center of the Earth somehow. You crash landed on a spaceship or, you know, teleported in on a spaceship that doesn't work anymore. And your main goal really is to try to repair the spaceship. But since you're also kind of under the Earth, you come up against like bugs and stuff in the beginning. But then there's some weird fantasy elements like you get a wand and you like have to slay a Hydra and stuff. Oh, weird. Which is, yeah, it's very strange because it's kind of, it's like, wait a minute, are we sci-fi or are we <laughs> fantasy? Because there's a spaceship involved as well. <laughs> but uh, it does both. So it's very weird. The scenery seems to just change randomly room to room. And it doesn't really make any sense. Like, are we underground? 
how did I just walk into a, a temple? You know, like, it's very strange. And uh, all the rooms are, like, they're definitely themed very differently. Maybe Greg was just kind of thinking up how many different things, like, themes you could think of. So one time you, like, walk into an ice room and something somewhere else you walk into, I think there was a room called the Velvet Room. And uh, there was a room called the Arabian Room, which apparently the description of that room was like, you hear guitar guitars playing in the background. <laughs> and um, actually, th- this game would be re-released on the, the Commodore Pet, the Commodore 64. And I think on the 64 version, they actually added in the only audio of this game, which is guitars at that moment. <laughs> but I'm writing the TR-80 version, which has no sound, which I'll get into in a sec. Yeah, it's just kind of like a a, te- a classic text adventure. There is combat, kind of. It's more like, you know, you encounter, let's say, a, a troll or, or an ogre, and you have the option of saying something. But generally, you need, like, an item, for instance, like a sword, and if you don't have it, you can try to do just about anything, like run or go to a different room, and it'll just say you were slayed by the giant or whatever it was. Right, yeah. So it's not really combat, it's more of like a kind of like checkpoints where you need this item or you're going to have to restart this game, <laughs> which is a little annoying for sure. But uh, the one thing about this game that I actually really enjoyed, and I think it's just because of the games I've been playing lately, for example, uh, Knight's Quest and Oubliette and stuff, a lot of those had a lot of random elements, especially to the way things were organized, like in Oubliette, all the dungeons are randomized. But in this game, it's a text adventure where the map is the same every time. So even if you go someplace and you insta-die because you shouldn't have gone there, it's always going to be in that location. So if you remember how you got there, you could just not go there. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. That kind of made it feel like even if I die, I'm not like restarting or losing all my progress. And that was kind of a nice change. So I kind of really enjoyed this game, actually. I'll get into a little bit more about that uh, when I get into my ratings, but let me start off by saying some of the easy ratings. So for sound, I gave it a zero. There's no sound. It's all text-based. And then for graphics, it's all text-based again. I think you in the past have given like all text-based zero out of 10. I give it a 0.25 out of 10 because it tried to do some descriptive telling, you know, of what you're seeing. Right. Yeah. It is apparently written by like a 12 or 13 year old. So most of the descriptions are like one or two sentences. But <laughs> uh, I think the the world doesn't really make any sense. It's completely random. But every room you go into is kind of memorable in a way because they're just so different. And it's kind of easier. It makes it easier in a way to navigate because, for instance, I walked into a room and it says, this is the Ruby room. And I was like, pick up Ruby. And it was like, you picked one up. I was like, okay, I didn't really have to like really try to figure that out. Whereas in like Colossal Cave Adventure, I think when you walk into a room, it could be like, doesn't say anything. Then you have to examine the room or open chest or, you know, it was so many other steps to it. And this was very straightforward, which is probably good for me. (laughs) So um, it was kind of interesting in its own way. But, you know, there's no sprites or real graphics or a map. Like, I had to draw the map by hand. And the CRPG Adventure blog helped me a little bit with that. But um, let me get into the gameplay. This was the hardest one for me to rate. I actually really enjoyed playing the game. 
and I made pretty good progress when I played it. But the thing is, I had the CRPG adventure blog where I could always go and reference. And I read that first. So I kind of knew like I should probably go this direction to be to start. <laughs> and uh, I kind of knew, oh, I need this item to do this thing. And I need this item to do this thing. And when I got those items, I could use them by typing in this. And that really made it so that all the quote unquote puzzles, I kind of knew how to solve them. Whereas if I hadn't have read that blog, I probably wouldn't have passed the first puzzle. Because right. kind of like what you said before, if you don't know exactly what the author intends, it's just impossible. Like one of the first quote unquote puzzles of this one is there's a chasm and across the chasm, you need to first get a wand. Okay, fair enough. But then to use it at the chasm, which first of all, there's nothing to tell you that using it at the chasm would do anything because it's a wand. It could have easily just been for slaying hydras or something like who knows that it like teleports you, but you have to go to the chasm and then type wave wand, which is definitely not the first thing I would think of. Right. I would say like use wand. Use wand. Yeah. Definitely not wave wand. So you have to use wave wand and then it teleports you across the chasm. So if I had not read that on this blog, I probably wouldn't have gone any further than that. So I think I got lucky when I played it because I had a lot of information. But if you look at it from the perspective of just someone playing it who doesn't know anything about this game, maybe like for for the advanced people like the CRPG Adventures blogger, like they play a lot of these games. They kind of know what they're looking for. But for me, it would have been pretty miserable. <laughs> so I only did like it because I had this knowledge. But um, the game itself, if you have the knowledge, I think it's pretty good. So it, it, I don't know. It's hard to rate. Something else that I want to mention quickly is that there is an RNG element where, especially in the beginning of the game, I guess because you're at the center of the earth or whatever, you can get attacked randomly by bugs and they'll insta-kill you if you don't have a sword, which you get maybe halfway through the game. So you can just straight up die for no reason, essentially. Oh, no. <laughs> and um, yeah, that that was really annoying to deal with as well. There's one part I tried two times to move through a certain area and I just died by bugs both times and it was just RNG. Like I just had to try it again. So I could definitely see that being really annoying, especially if you take a long time to figure out where that sword is that you have to use to kill the bugs could be a problem. There's also parts of the game that seem to be somewhat unfinished. Like I think there's an ogre or a troll or something. And I think the CRPG adventure blog, just said like they can't figure out any reason for that thing to be there there's no way to kill it you just have to go around it and uh, continue the game so there's some weird stuff like that there's also like a weird scoring system at the end you would think like if you can get the the piece to repair your spaceship that would be that but it has actually uses like a point-based system and repairing the spaceship and ending the game will get you like 50 points but you can get up to like 150 points if you had gotten like the rubies and the stuff from before and placed them in your spaceship before you ended the game. Which obviously it doesn't tell you that. So (laughs) I was watching one group of people play it and they did really well and they ended the game, but their score was pretty bad because they didn't know to look for anything else. So it's really a game about exploration and that's probably one of my favorite parts. Like I really enjoyed making my own map for it. I think it's the first time I ever really tried to do that. But um, 
I think just compared to the games that I've been looking at, like Oubliette, like Oubliette is like a it's like a maze where every single wall looks exactly the same, so you get lost really easily. But in this game, every single room you go to has some weird, wacko description that probably doesn't make sense, but it's memorable, you know? Right. So it's this weird thing where it's bad, but it kind of helped it. <laughs> so I give the gameplay 1.75 out of 10. Like I said, I think it's not good, but somehow I enjoyed it. <laughs> so uh, that leaves me with relevance. I give it a 7. That's mainly because Greg Hassett is going to go on to write, I don't know, like 10 games, all like RPG text adventure games. So we're going to be seeing him a lot. This is his first one. He's young and uh, it's not the best, but he's going to be pretty relevant. We're going to see his name a lot and I'm hoping this is going to be the worst one he does. So (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to give him a high relevance for that. And overall, it was hard. I gave it a 1 out of 10. I enjoyed it more than that, but I had to kind of put my score down a little bit because I was like, oh yeah, I have all the answers. <laughs> and, you know, it has no sound. It has no graphics. So if you if the gameplay wasn't really good and you got stuck somewhere, you know, you're going to be pretty done with this game. <laughs> so I just gave it a 1 out of 10, even though I really enjoyed it. And uh, that's Journey to the Center of the Earth. What do you think? It's definitely not as complex as Colossal Cave Adventure, but um, there is still mazes and stuff. There's some kind of combat, kind of. Um, yeah. So, you know, and it's my first real text adventure game, I think. So it was a nice difference for me compared to the normal stuff I've been doing. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, what you were kind of struggling with there with gameplay speaks to, I think, what I talked about back Colossal Cave Adventure, where it's like the best part and worst part of the game is almost the fact that it's such a specifically crafted experience Mm -hmm. it's like that's what makes it so memorable and interesting but that's what makes it so difficult to solve which right maybe at the time is kind of an interesting challenge but to me the just like trying to guess which verb i'm supposed to use isn't fun now right (laughs) and that's that's where i was luckily like i read through the crpg adventure blog before i played it and so i kind of knew i had to wave wand and i kind of knew i needed a wand before i could move and stuff so um i knew the wand was like to the east or something you know they didn't make a map so i still had to do some exploration myself but it was like the perfect level of difficulty because i never got stuck (laughs) um whereas if i hadn't had that this game probably would have been terrible <laughs> right so um especially with the uh, bugs potentially killing you around every corner at the beginning so yeah i tried to lower my ratings while still saying i enjoyed it which i did so yeah oh, cool. hard one to rate <laughs> yeah definitely. maybe next time i'll try i'll try to go into it clean but I, I mean i always feel like i rate these low too but at the same time i'm always happy to see them it's it's weird like yeah they're so interesting but they're not always that fun. (laughs) Another big shout out before we end it today, go check out the CRPG adventure blog. We mentioned them all the time. I think we did it twice this episode. Yeah. Yeah. They've got great write-ups and it's just a a great resource. So thank you to them. And uh, I think with that, we'll, we'll close out here today. We talked about the Fairchild. I'm glad that they're back. I've missed them. It's been a while. I think. We also talked about the Pascal 
programming language, which will probably be the first of many talks about that. I rated the Odyssey 2100, which compared to the Fairchild, is not as good. <laughs> Although it was in color and stuff, it's just not, not as nice. Wes, you talked about library, a text adventure, and the Wander system. I'm glad that you finally got to get to see one of those because I feel like I've been getting all of them. But uh, And then I finally did Journey to the Center of the Earth, a TRS-80 CRPG. So, true text one. Oh yeah, and one of the first or the first one that you got to really dig into. <laughs> yeah. So make sure to check us out on Twitter where we'll be posting announcements about when our episodes are going up. Check out our website. We have a ton of stuff up there about all the previous stuff that we've covered. And send us an email if you have any questions. And with that, we'll see you in the next one. See y'all next time.